Welcome to the Pet Industry Podcast, connecting you with the people behind the passion, the leading experts in the pet industry. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Sprinkle. Welcome back to the Pet Industry Podcast. I'm so excited to bring our guest today, Linda Case. And I'm excited because Linda Case knows how to communicate science in a very understandable way. So Linda Case is a well-known author, canine nutritionist, and dog trainer. She's the author of nine books, as well as the popular science dog blog. She taught at the University of Illinois Department of Animal Sciences and College of Veterinary Medicine and currently owns the Science Dog Courses, an online professional training school for dog owners and professionals. Today, I have helping me our producer, Whitney Russell, and our own Dr. Stephanie Clark. Thank you for joining us, Linda Case. I've been very excited to to have you onto the podcast because you have done a lot of work when it comes to science in the pet world, and you've really been very good at bringing that science to a very wide audience. So it's something that I really admire about you is your ability to communicate evidence-based science in our industry. I'm really curious to hear more about your story. What has been your journey to get into the pet industry and what's led you to where you are today? Sure. First, thank you for inviting me. I'm just thrilled to be here and to be working with BSM Partners. Yeah. So I came to animals relatively naturally because I grew up in a family with animals. I had a horse growing up in Hickory and my mom was actually going way back, but she was a dog trainer and we had dogs and we spent many years training and chewing dogs together. So I had a natural interest, obviously, in training for many years. And then I think it's in my house. I don't need to repeat it. I came out here to University of Illinois for graduate school and actually went to school for nutrition, even though at that time I was still training and showing dogs a lot. At that time, things have changed. There was not much available to folks who were interested in an academic training in behavior training in dogs. I had a really great undergraduate advisor at Cornell who said, what's going to be booming in a few years? It's nutrition. <laughs> and he was right. The field, as you all know, is taken off enormously. And I also was interested in nutrition because I loved biochemistry when I was an undergrad. So I came here and after I finished my master's, I was hired by the University of Illinois Department of Animal Sciences to teach their companion animal program, which I loved. It was just the dream job. And while I was doing that, a good friend of mine from graduate school, Dr. Diane Hirakawa, had left to finish her PhD and she went to work for a small company called The Iams Company. And so she and I collaborated on a book. And I was, so I started out writing textbooks while I was teaching at U of I. And at that time, also, my husband and I bought some land out in the country and we were still showing and training dogs. And I opened a, dog, a small dog training school. So I was teaching at the U of I and teaching here and writing with Diane. During that time, I wrote three different textbooks while I was teaching undergrad and found I really enjoyed science writing. And so Diane and I continued to collaborate and I got to know others in her company. 
And so I started to do quite a bit of science writing and technical writing for pet food companies on a consulting basis. And so for many years, my writing was technical and it was directed towards other scientists. This ghostwriting a lot of research papers for Diane and her team and writing a lot of white papers, which explain new research to other researchers and to other scientists. So at some point, I started going to training conferences because I was still dog training and showing dogs. And I started giving, I was asked to give talks about nutrition at these conferences. And what I found was that many trainers, professional trainers, were highly interested in nutrition and in feeding practices and how to select a good dog food. And their questions, as you are veterinarians know very well, revolved around their clients asking them, what should I feed my dog? How do I determine to select the best food for my dog? And they were at a loss of how to answer those questions. So that opened the door for me personally into taking science writing and trying to write and create lectures and programs for people that might not have a strong science background, but who wanted to communicate good information about nutrition. So that led to me writing more books that made that jump from science writing for other academics into science writing with popular press science writing. And the first book that I did that with was Dog Food Logic. And then the Science Dog kind of series came out of that. And from that came the Science Dog blog. I've been around a while. And from that, and from the Science Dog blog in recent years came the Science Dog courses. So that's that brand has come back. And here we are today. Yes. I admit this is, it's a very special skill to have, to be able to take scientific information and make sure that people of all backgrounds understand it and have the take-home points. This is something, as you mentioned, companies have sought these people because of how important this skill is. Do you have any tips? Some of this is selfish because I'm still learning this. But what tips do you have when it comes to trying to communicate science to a very large audience? Oh, it's a great, great question. And I think one that I certainly don't have all the answers to. I still, with the Science Dog blog, I have some, some essays. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. People are going to love it. And they, all I hear is crickets. And then others that I just think, oh, this is interesting that do really well. So I think it, it's, it is always a moving target. I had a professor, and I always remember this, in graduate school, who, of all things, taught statistics. And he was fabulous. And believe it or not, he was interesting and engaging. It was statistics. And I remember a friend of mine, we'd go to his lectures and he was not only a good teacher, but he was funny. And we would just sit there and laugh, laughing at a statistics lecture. Who does that? So I had the good fortune of liking his courses and doing well enough that he hired me as a TA while I was, while I was a graduate student. And in talking to him about lecturing and being a good lecturer, one of his pieces of advice that I loved was, he said, Linda, always tell a story. Always try and bring something out about the research or whatever you're communicating that makes it personal and that your readers can relate to. And so I do try and do that with the blog, and I certainly try to do it with Dog Food Logic and my other books. Again, I don't think I always hit the mark, <laughs> but that's definitely a central to, I think, 
taking science, which some people are who view as dry, I personally don't, but but many do, and, and trying to make it more engaging and emotional, if you will. The other thing that I think is important and I think is a good theme to stay with is to, especially in nutrition, because you work you all work in, in nutrition fields and you know how many myths that there are and how emotional people become about nutrition and feeding practices. And that's, I try and identify many of the um, biases and logical fallacies and cognitive biases that our brains have that often lead us down the wrong path when we're making decisions about our dog's health and nutrition. And those are fun because they're myth-busting, things like the confirmation bias or delusion of control. There's a bunch of these that I often try and identify, and we just had one where it's talking about the fundamental attribution bias. So there are a lot of biases that are fun to talk about and say, this is why our minds induce us into thinking things that may not be rationally true or may not have scientific evidence behind them. And this is how you can avoid those biases. So that's a fun thing too, because I think people enjoy reading about that and saying, oh, that makes sense. I might do that. Or that might be why I believe this. And lastly, that's gone too long. I think the industry itself has really helped. The, The reason for that is that in the last 15 to 20 years, our industry, the nutrition industry in particular, as opposed to just the overall pet industry. But I think also, this is true before social cognition in dogs and training research. Our industry is doing really cool research these days that's very applied, that, that provides evidence for things that people care about and for things that other pet professionals need to know about and can use in their work rather than here's the minimum daily requirement for copper or here's what we were doing in the 80s, which is much more basic research. Yes. So as you're talking about like understanding why we believe things that we do. You're starting to get into psychology, which there's a lot of psychology and behavior. So do you have a lot of crossover with your background in training and then nutrition? Yeah, definitely have a lot of crossover from my interests. And one of the really cool crossovers that this is a little bit of a segue, but it, I think it, it fits is that are the dog labs that have come up and I've written about these a lot on the blog. They're all over the world now and they're, many of them are studying social cognition in the dog. Some are studying training approaches and they utilize dogs who live in homes. And for many years, I was saying, we need to do this in nutrition. <laughs> and we are now. There's more and more of in-home feeding trials that we're seeing good published data on. So I think that's one of the crossovers that I think our industry, the nutrition industry, and the pet food industry is, is starting to include those types of studies in their work as well. The crossover also, of course, is, as I mentioned earlier, that many trainers do take our course. That's probably our primary student base in the science dog courses, our professional trainers and other professionals in the pet industry. Like we have a lot of pet supply store proprietors. We have a lot of organizations that are the certified trainers that take our courses so I think the crossover there is also trying to provide good and solid and evidence-based nutrition information to trainers who are working in that field. Yeah. Yeah. I, we actually have to read some of your textbooks, which have been very helpful in studying for some of the tests and certifications we're needing to get. But out of the books that you've written, textbook-wise and more blog-based-wise, which have been the hardest to gather information for and just 
staying motivated because a textbook, I imagine, takes a long time to develop in a lot of constant peer reviewing. Yeah, probably that's a great question. As far as difficulty and the depth of information, without a doubt, the very first one that I did with Diane. And then that book went on to have, I think, three editions. And by the third one, I was like, oh, no, please. (laughs) And I had a team of of people working on it that was canine and feline nutrition. But it was just an enormous project. And I loved it at the time. But then when I did segue into more popular press, science writing, I really realized that was a tough project. But I loved it. It was, but it was an enormous project. You have a really unique perspective and someone who's constantly looking at research that's coming out in the in pet very much. I know your interest is in, in nutrition. And then you also have this really close audience who really respects and is following you and you're listening to them and their interests. So I'm really interested to hear what have you seen over the past few years? And we've definitely had all sorts of changes and drama in the pet industry <laughs> over the past few years. I'm curious to hear what have you seen? If it, Are there changes in the way people are feeling interest in topics? Yeah, it's a good question. Social media. <laughs> For it's good and it's bad. Know that you as a group have experienced the drama of the last several years as well. So I think the good thing about social media is that Um, People interact more and they can share information more. Of course, the downside is that it becomes an echo chamber for mythologies and for strong beliefs. And that can lead to some poor behavior on the part of a small number of people. So I think that's something that we've all had to deal with. I I was around when the ethnoxiquine issue came about with pet foods, and that was pretty bad because there was a lot of misinformation that that was exchanged, but that was way before social media. And so social media takes something like that and amplifies it further. So I, again, like anyone would say today, there are benefits to our ability to connect with so many people at a time. And there are certainly deficits to that. In terms of actual topics, I think that, again, I think our industry is researching some amazing things. And I think that this is getting out there. So I tend to be pretty positive about things that, for example, I think the increased interest in alternative food types. It used to be canned or extruded dry, and those were your choices, and we're booming these days in different ways of keeping raw food safe and coming out with fresh-cooked foods, human-grade foods versus pet-grade foods, and we're starting to regulate those better. And there's a research behind a lot of that. It's not just just coming out with a new type of food and saying it's great. There is good research that's looking into all those things. So I think those are changes that are good, and I think that social media is a good thing for that and that we can spread that information better. One of, I guess, one of my reputations, a friend of mine wrote this out just recently. We were talking about some issue, and believe it or not, it wasn't DCM, but it was an issue that was a hot issue in nutrition. And he posted one of my blogs and then he said, Linda Case puts this out and then she just steps back. <laughs> and that kind of, that kind of put it in a nutshell. I, I try not to get into the personal fights about these things. I just say, here's the evidence and make your decisions. But this is what the evidence is telling us. And if we could all try and stay a little less hot-headed and less emotional and just look at the evidence, I think it would serve everyone really well. It doesn't always happen that way, though. 
you know, it sounds like you're excited about a lot of the innovation that's coming into the pet industry as well. Is there a particular set of research or innovation that you've seen that's coming out or has come out that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, there there are two, and they're kind of at odds with each other. One is the studies that are increasing in number that look at human-grade ingredients and human-grade food. And what is conflated there is that, or confounded really, is that most foods that are made with human-grade ingredients are also less processed, are only moderately processed. So in my view, and I think these studies are coming, we need to separate those two issues because they're both important, both the quality of the ingredients and how that food's processed. And a lot of the studies that are being, at least to date, the studies that are available conflate those. So the highly processed foods tend to be made with pet-grade ingredients and the less processed foods tend to be made with human-grade ingredients. But I think as a class of studies and a class of foods, looking at different processing methods, not just fresh cooked, but freeze-dried, cold-pressed, they're dehydrated, that are less highly processed food. What's at odds with that, because human grades, no one will argue that's sustainable, is the sustainable products and the sustainable protein sources, that insect-based proteins and also some of the newer plant-based proteins. And so I think sustainability is an importantly huge issue. And so that's exciting to me too, that there are a lot of really interesting studies looking at nutrient nutrient availability and the quality of these newer protein sources that are going to have less of an environmental footprint than many others. Is there a protein source that you're more excited about? I think that the black soldier fly larva is very exciting. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. And I think that's the one that has probably the most research behind it now. I just looked at a paper last night that was early, very early when this was all going on. And, and one of the things they found that adult crickets, which just surprised me because they'd be all chitin, adult crickets had the highest protein content, which kind of floored me. So I, but again, we don't see as much research. It's, as you said, the black soldier fly larva. I think we have the most evidence about it. It seems like it's moving along quickly the best in terms of producing meals and putting them in a dog food and then seeing how the dogs do. I think that one may be the furthest along. Yeah. I think there's some, there's research just in different areas. It's the, in the cat and the dog that we need. Keep doing that research for those listening. But yes, there's research for other species. I think I saw something come out where they're we're seeing how insect protein might even work in large animal feeds and things like that. Sustainability is really important. And so I'm glad to see that it's people are really trying to do the research, not only to be sustainable, but still keeping the animal in mind as well, that they are still getting all the nutrients that they need. It's all it's still digestible, all of those things. So yeah, I think. This is a really exciting time. I agree. Slightly going back just a little bit, but we've talked about some innovation things. Again, lots of research coming out now in in the pet industry. I'm also curious, because you do speak with a lot of other people in different parts of the animal industry, what is something about like the pet industry, maybe especially in nutrition, that you think maybe people outside of the industry may not realize? Yeah, I think that that's a great question because I think there is that not understanding things leads to myths. And I guess what I would say, I think that you always heard the phrase on the shoulders of giants, is that we have a very broad and very deep body of knowledge about 
both canine and feline nutrition, the studies that determined minimal amino acid requirements of dogs and cats go back to the late 1970s and early 80s. And all of that research that was done here at the University of Illinois, a lot was done at Davis, that we all stand on those shoulders now. And that research, I think a lot of people don't know that we have that, that we do have a pretty strong understanding of the basic nutrient requirements, basic essential nutrient requirements of dogs and cats. We have a pretty strong understanding of why cats are different from dogs nutritionally. And I think a lot of the time that knowledge either isn't understood or known. People think, oh, they don't know what they're doing. They're just making dogs loot in marketers are selling it and they're just making claims. Not understanding that there is a, not only science, but a very strong science behind canine and feline nutrition. I don't know how to best communicate that other than to keep on fighting the good fight. But I think that's, that's something that needs to be emphasized a lot, that, that we all stand on the work that's been done before us. That was very well said. I don't think I could say that <laughs> even half as well. And then the reason why I wanted to try to get this interview in pretty soon was that we are, this is the last day of February that we're recording this. It is going to be Women's History Month next month. And yes, always a wonderful month. And we really thought about the people that we respected in this industry who were also female. And you are definitely one of those that we think about. Thank you. For anyone, especially maybe women in the industry or interested in getting in the industry, is there anything specific that you might give as a recommendation just off of your experience being in this industry for a few years? I think things are better for women than they ever have been. You're all in the veterinary field. You imagine your classes were pretty strongly supported by, held by women. I think that's one of the things is that more and more women hopefully are going into the sciences. But one of the things we didn't touch on um, that I think about a lot in terms of nutrition, and this is what initially led to writing Dog Food Logic, was that the juxtaposition of emotion and rational thinking, or science in this case. And when people feed their dog, it's an emotional experience. We nurture, we care for them. We want to feed them thing that will keep them from getting cancer and from getting any illnesses and living a long and healthy life. That's the emotional component. But then sometimes those emotions affect us. Again, going back to these biases that we have when we make selections based upon something that really is a science. I think as scientists, we should embrace emotion more than we do, but stay true to being scientists as well. Marketers, they're great at this. They can really grab the emotional heartstrings very well. But I think scientists could learn a little bit from that because I think that a woman, anyone, can and should go into the sciences and keep her compassion and keep her empathy and keep her love of animals. Those things are not separate in the fact that we adore our dogs and do everything we can to keep them healthy, that shouldn't cloud um, our rational thought, our belief in the scientific method, our belief in evidence-based, even if some of that evidence goes against what our prevailing beliefs are. It's nothing I like to see more than a scientist publish non-results and say, this is what we thought was going to happen, but didn't happen, and still publish it. That, to me, is high integrity in science as it should work. 
So I guess that's what I would say is that stay with science. You need it. Even if you love the warm, fuzzy stuff, which of course we all do, try and stick with the science and because you can hit both. You really can. How have you seen the representation of female leadership change in the years that you've been in the industry, both in nutrition as well as in the pet? food industry specifically? Many of my own mentors were women. My graduate advisor was Dr. Gail Zarnecki, and she's an amazing scientist and actually is a dog trainer too. And as I mentioned earlier, Diane Hirakawa. So I feel lucky that I had some female mentors early on. If you look at the animal scientist department here, there are some Maria Gutadawis here. There are some amazing scientists in our field. In terms of leadership, I think that there are quite a few women, Josh, in training, in the training field, it's probably 90% women. And I just had a discussion, in fact, about this with one of the women who did one of our research webinars, which I'm hoping that BSM will get involved with us soon. And I haven't purposely just had women do those, but I definitely am trying to promote young women researchers. And one of the women did a, a talk. Her name's Anne-Marie Johnson. She did a talk about word use in the training industry and how that may or may not be perceived by the average pet owner. And one of the things she found, which is a little upsetting, was that although about 90% of the trainers were female, a disproportionate pr proportion of males owned the actual company. So I think we have a little way to go there. And she was actually surprised to find that. And, and, but it was, it was evidence. It was a fact. So I think that at least in the training field, we, we certainly had a little way to go in terms of leadership. And it was once one small study, but it was a data point that was interesting. We have a couple of questions to start to wrap up the conversation, but I want to leave it open. Is there anything that is top of mind for you going on in the industry that you want to talk about a little bit? Oh, sure. In the industry, I think I already mentioned that I think the studies that are being done are really good. I think that new types of foods that we don't just have a limited choice between two categories of food anymore. And I think that, again, the research behind those foods is really important. So I, again, I think we're at a place in that way. Yes. BSM is all over that too. Yes. <laughs> we, we like research. <laughs> all right. A couple of questions to wrap up is what is a professional accomplishment you are most proud of when you think about the your career in the pet industry? I think it would probably be being able to make that jump because I was very comfortable in the writing science for other scientists pigeonhole. I was very, I loved that work. I think making the jump from that to popular press science writing. And from that, the first book for that was Dog Food Logic. And that was actually on the urging of a friend who was an editor with Dogwise. And he really wanted me to write up one of the talks that I was giving to trainers and that kind of developed into that book. That book did well, but the second popular press book that I wrote that I probably am most proud of is Beware the Straw Man. And the reason I'm proud of that particular book is that its entire purpose was to take the scientific method, make it fun and make a story. There's a trainer and her dog in that book that go through this process of trying to prove or disprove a particular theory. And 
the whole reason for that book was to say, we can care about our dogs. We can have these emotions, but here's why we need science. And here's why the scientific method protects us from our collective biases and allows us to look at things more factually. So that, I would say I'm most proud of that book, even though it probably isn't done as well as some of my other books. It's still my favorite book. That sounds like you could almost make it into a children's book too. Have you thought about <laughs> writing a children's book? Oh, well, I know I haven't. I, yeah. <laughs> it does sound like, like one. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah, I'll give that to one of, one of the BSM partners. Okay, we'll run with it now. Okay. Okay. So outside of the pet realm, what else do you like to do? Are you into books, yoga, hiking? What's your hobbies? Yeah, thank you for asking. I was a longtime distance runner for many years. And my husband and I would run marathons together. And we always ran with our dogs. That was a huge part. My knees finally got to the point they said, you better stop this or else. I do love athletics. I swim and hike and cycle. I can still cycle. Thank goodness my knees are okay with that. I love to garden. I do love yoga. In fact, I took up yoga a couple of years ago because, again, my body was saying, stop all the shadows. And yoga is amazing for stretching. And I still train, even though we our dog training school closed for COVID. And then we half opened for a while. And at that point, the science dog courses were really taking off. So officially, our training school is closed. But I still train my own dogs. And I have a group of friends who come over and use our facility. And we just train for fun. So we do nose work and we do a little bit of agility. But it's all, we don't compete or anything. It's all just fun. So I do spend a lot of time with my dogs. All my hiking is with the dogs. And even when I'm out gardening, they're with me too. Wow. I actually just ran my five, first 5K in February. That was very difficult. So the fact that you won, run marathons, I remember. Well, I wasn't, yeah, it, it, I wasn't running fast. I'll give you <laughs> Yeah, me neither. I, I got the job done, but it wasn't pretty. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah. Exactly. With training, I'm not a trainer, so I'm not well-versed in it, but what about it excites you? I think the main thing is the bond with the dog, 100%. In fact, I even noticed I, we have two dogs now, Stanley, who came in behind me a little bit ago, and Alice. And I even find if I go too long without just doing something, tricks training or nose work, I feel like I'm not as close to them. And so I think it's because of that communication that's just so special. It could be something as simple as playing hide the toy in your house or doing something nose work related or teaching a little trick. I think it's all about that communication. That's so rewarding to us and to our dogs. It's just huge. Yeah, that's beautiful. We actually recently just had a podcast with another guest and he talked about the bond between the human and the, and the pet or the dog in his case and how meaningful it is and how it's more of a spiritual connection more than anything. So what you're saying really mimics what he was saying. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've talked so much about your pets. Do you want to name them all and give them credit for all the work that they do? Sure. Staley is our youngest. He's a four-year-old Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever or a toller. And he's our second toller. And then Alice is seven and she's a golden retriever. Um, we have a third golden named Cooper who is 11. And he, a year and a half ago, was diagnosed with angiosarcoma. We live near the vet school, so we treat it. They're just amazing. They have an amazing oncology group. And he actually did very well, but we lost him in October. And then we have Pete the cat. And Pete is 11. 
And he was a formerly feral, and I use the word feral, he was not free-ranging, he was wild. And we actually, we live out in the country, so we trapped me to release him, thought that'll be it. And he came knocking on the door and said, I'd really like to come inside. <laughs> and so he, he is now the best, he is the best cat we've ever had. He's just, he's like another dog. He's so affectionate, which it, it still floors me that he was as wild as he was. And is just this great house cat. You right. train Pete the cat? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think he trains us. <laughs> We did try and teach him to walk on a harness, and he wanted nothing of that because we wanted to get him outside safely. But boy, there was a trial. <laughs> I feel like the pets have their personalities. How would you describe each of your pets' personalities? Alice is a diva. She is a diva. She is the queen. She is, and she's just, she is, she's very high energy because all of our goldens have been from field, a field breeder. And so she's tiny. She's only about 50 pounds. Very high energy and just, she's a princess. I adore her. And then Stanley is very typical of many tollers. He's very busy, very happy. If you're anywhere near water, he is swimming. We have a pool and he spends pretty much the whole summer in the pool and he loves to train. And then Pete is very affectionate. He's definitely a lap cat, which again, just, he was feral. And, and he's just a sweet boy. Sometimes he gets a little wild where we see the feral Pete come out again. But generally, he's a very gentle soul. How about you guys? What pets do you have? Whitney, do you want to go? Yeah, I actually am petless. I'm on the market looking at rescue. I've been looking for two, right. I've been looking for two years now. It's been a while, but it's because I moved into a, a high rise apartment and I just don't feel like it's the best place to have pet. But she, I did have a, what was she? She was a Chinese Crescent powder pup. So she was not hairless when I was little up until probably when I was 17. She died. But she uh, was you most... were 17 or she was? I was 17. Oh, okay. Yeah, but she was so sweet, very calm. Our household was calm. Just if you can think of the most thin dog, <laughs> that was her. <laughs> yeah, it's an unusual breed. You do not see many of them at all. Yeah, I am a very sickly, I was a sickly child. And I know there's no such thing as hyperallergenic, but she was, she did not react yeah. to her allergies. So that's why we got her. And she didn't really shed, which was helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. This is just a fun story. So when I was at the University of Missouri, we had a group of dogs. And they were a cross between Chinese crested and beagles. Oh, my gosh. We, I know. Right. They, we called them kriegles. <laughs> was it a purposeful breeding? I, that is a very good question. I'm not sure that they will not go in. They <laughs> yeah. were the research dogs. And so I maybe or maybe they weren't. And so that's why they became research dogs. I don't know. <laughs> they were terrible research dogs. So because they were picky. They, oh, no. You don't yeah. want picky eaters as right. research right. dogs. So they apparently got the Chinese crested appetites because the other half is beagle, right? Yeah. And the this is why I think genetics is just fascinating because all of them but one they look like this scruffy terrier thing and then one just looks pure beagle oh my gosh yeah it's crazy to me but so do you have one of them no (laughs) (laughs) no i just was going off a chinese crest and every time i hear chinese crested i either think them them. or i had a classmate and that was like her breed so she had the naked ones Um, yeah 
Yeah, they're bizarre. They are a little they odd. Are. They're <laughs> very weird. But I, it's they're okay. It's amazing that there's two of you and you both had experiences with them because a lot of people wouldn't even know what they are. Really? I think they're hilarious. But, but it's okay to be picky, Whitney, because I went for a very long time without a dog as a single lady getting my advanced degrees, moving around in apartments. Yeah, you just... You need to be picky. But now I have one dog. She is a Great Dane. She is almost four. And she's enough of a dog that right now we just have one. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of dogs. Yes, she is a hoot. A very, just a character. We love her. We don't always admit it, but we do. And <laughs> <laughs> They are personalities, the Great Danes, definitely. She is. She cracks me up. So, yeah, that's mine. And then Stephanie has a few. But you yeah, just have two old girls. We were a beagle family. So I had a beagle growing up and she had yellow eyes and we got her from a breeder. She was like the reject and she was just best dog, like never barked. You could pretend cry and she was there for you. Mm-hmm. And she ended up passing away and we had to get another beagle because, you know, we had an empty house. And my sister picked out her name is Gracie Lou Freebush. Geniality. Even the only little puppy at, at our local shelter, she tried to pick a fight with a Great Dane. And my sister was like, I want that dog. I now have that dog. Or, and she came to prevent school with me. She taught classes with me. She was great with practicing IVs because all she wanted was just to be loved. It was about her all the time. And we would go to the dog park and she would go there for the people, not the dogs. And honestly, she's a skinny beagle. We kept her trim. She would just go run. I tried a half marathon twice and I'm terrified of a full, but she would come running with me. So she was a skinny beagle. And up until mid last year, she finally, she's diagnosed with insufficient mitral valve disease. And so that slowed her down a little bit. But up until then, she was feisty. She was funky. She was always down to play. And then Annie, I call her my little orphan Annie. She was abused for two years and they were going to euthanize her. And I was like, can we just foster her for the weekend? And here we are 11 years later. <laughs> How old is the older guy? She's 13. Okay. Yeah. And Annie's 12, but she is the most loyal dog. We call her a hood rat because she'll punk <laughs> our other dog to get something from her or she's just, she's scrappy, but she. I walk her off leash because she just stays right next to me. When I was pregnant, she was super protective. And now my daughter is like their buddies. Great. That's great. But yeah, they're two old girls and they definitely keep our house lively even at their age. <laughs> There's nothing like senior dogs. I just love the senior. I just, like, we've had, because we've had goldens for many years, we've lost dogs relatively early sometimes. So we've had a couple of our goldens live to be 15 or 16 and those are great years. We can keep them that long. We're just so lucky. Yeah. I always love that we come back to talking about the human-animal bond, especially in our own experiences with our own pets. I want to thank you so much for being willing to take a little bit of your time and share it with us and our audience. And also for people who are interested to learn more about the science dog, whether it's the blog or the courses, where would you like for people to go? If you Google the science dog, I think you'll go to the blog and the blog has links to my books and to the courses and the blog, of course, is free to everybody. And and even on the courses, we have some free stuff on there too. So yeah, probably the easiest way is just Google the science dog and the courses are, I think the website is courses.thescienceDog.com. 
And uh, the Science Dog blog is the Science Dog Dad. All right. We'll make sure to put that in the show notes for everybody as well. Thank you for joining us on the Pet Industry Podcast, a BSM Partners production with editing by Cliff Dubinois. Your podcast team is me, Dr. Megan Sprinkle, and Whitney Russell. If you want to learn more about our family at BSM, please visit our website at bsmpartners.net. And please make sure you are subscribed to the podcast, tell a friend, and find us here next time.